Well, let's uh, go back to our series. We're in the Statement of Faith, and we're actually getting pretty close to the end. Um, there's only a, a few um, articles left, really. I think about five, um, I believe. And uh, tonight uh, we're going to be talking about um, something that we did just today, and it's really um, the two ordinances of, of the Lord, uh, one being baptism and, and the other being the Lord's table, which we observed uh, this morning. Um, so looking at um, Article 13... Um, out of the statement of, of faith, we'll go ahead and um, do as we always do. We'll read what the statement of faith says, and then we'll um, analyze it to um, see how we understand this and, and why we understand these things. All right, so Article 13 of Baptism and the Lord's Supper. We believe that Christian baptism is the immersion of a believer in water to show in a solemn and beautiful symbol our faith in the crucified, buried, and risen Savior, and pictures our death to sin and resurrection to a new life, that it is a prerequisite, that it is prerequisite to the privileges of church membership. Uh, we believe that the Lord's table is the commemoration of his death until he comes, is open to all who have been saved and should be preceded always by solemn self-examination. All right, so we'll start with uh, baptism, and this is certainly um, a topic in which there's quite a bit of debate. Um, in fact, um, this is one of the biggest things that separates us from Presbyterians, for instance. Um, Presbyterians um, don't believe in immersion. They, uh, you know, they sprinkle and they do baptize infants as well. Um, so there's, there's, there's definitely a different practice there. Um, for us, uh, we would say we believe in immersion. And what, what, what do you think is the primary argument for immersion? What do you guys think? Yeah, I mean, the, the word baptism, you know, we, we, it has a technical term now. I mean, we think of it as, as a believer, you know, being baptized uh, for, for the faith and whatnot. Um, but it was just a regular Greek word that literally just meant immerse. Uh, I mean, that's what it meant. It, it meant to immerse um, someone. Now, just because it literally meant immerse, it doesn't mean that it didn't also have symbolic meaning. All right? Because when we talk about baptism, there's not just water baptism, is there, in the Bible? What are the kind of, uh, other kinds of baptism is there? Yeah, there, there's the baptism of fire. There's the spirit baptism. Um, in fact, I think it's in, um, I think it's in the book of John when, uh, when both of them are being mentioned, either John or Matthew. Let me take a look here. Um, Matthew chapter 3, verse 11 Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. John the Baptist, um, he's the one that baptized first. And um, John the Baptist, when you think about his baptism, that was actually an Old Testament baptism. Um, not to be confused with the New Testament baptism. Um, what we do today when people profess their faith and they're baptized, that, that's uh, New Testament baptism. That's under the New Testament, the New Covenant. Um, what John was doing, this uh, New Covenant had not been inaugurated yet. It wasn't in place. Um, so he was actually doing an Old Testament baptism, which was a, a really a Jewish practice where they would go to these uh, these water pools that they call mikvahs, and they would get into that water pool and, and they would cleanse themselves. It was like a it was a spiritual cleansing um, where they they would uh, you know confess their sins and 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 cleanse themselves before they would uh, take on an important task. And so when John the Baptist came in and baptized, it was very much with this kind of Old Testament um, picture to it. Um, but if you take a look at chapter three, verse eleven. John says this, as for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit 
and fire. So obviously at this point, when we think of the word baptize, uh, the, the immersion aspect of it, this is symbolic here. You're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, what is, um, I think we understand what Holy Spirit baptism, well, how would you describe Holy Spirit baptism? What is that? When does it happen? Salvation, right? Yeah, it's a regeneration. That's when you receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. Um, you're, you're, baptized, uh, you're, you're baptized by the Spirit. Um, and I would say that you're baptized into the body, um, into the body of Christ. That's um, 1 Corinthians 12. Um, what is the um, baptism of fire? Because there's some, there's some controversy over this, too. Um, baptized, baptism of fire, repentance. Okay, that's, that's one thought. What's another? Final judgment. Final judgment. Final judgment. Okay, now, there's two primary views on this. Some believe that this baptism of fire is a, is a refining fire. So, for instance, if you went to 1 Peter, um, Peter talks about the, the trials of life and how it refines your faith. You, you know, more precious than gold, your, your faith is being refined. Um, but there is the other um, view that this is the judgment, that this is the fire of judgment for, for those who do not believe. And I think verse 12, um, to me, settles it. I mean, I think it's very clear what he's referring to. When you look at verse 12, um, he says, His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will thoroughly clear his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Um, so when we see that, he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. What does that clearly refer to? Yeah, that's, that's judgment. That's hell. Um, and that, um, that idea of unquenchable fire, that goes back to Isaiah 66. I don't know if you know this. It's worth looking at. Take a, take a look at Isaiah 66. It's the final chapter of Isaiah, uh, Isaiah is 66 chapters long, and it, um, it, it ends in, in a very climactic way. Um, take a look at the last few verses, if you can find your way to Isaiah 66, and we're going to go to verse um, 21, 66, 21. Um, and, and the Lord says this, I will take some of them for priests and for Levites, verse 24, verse 22, for just as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure. Um, actually, is this the right place I'm looking for? Hold on a second. Yeah, because keep going. Keep going? Okay. Um, so it shall be from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all mankind will come and bow down before me. They will go forth and look on the corpses. Yeah, right. So verse 24, that very last verse. On the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me, for their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched, and they will be an aberrance to all mankind. Um, so we see very clear language from the end of the book of Isaiah that judgment is going to be eternal. I mean, the idea that their worm will not die. There's a couple of, you know, worm will not die can refer to one of two things. Either literally the worms that, that like maggots that eat up dead bodies. Um, the idea is that the worm will not die because the bodies will never fully be consumed. Um, the, the other idea is that the worm, it can refer to the inner spirit of man. And either way, it, it portrays um, something that will last eternally. Their fire will not be quenched. So the fire um, will, will never stop. I mean, it, it will just continue to, to burn and burn and burn. Um, and these ideas are portrayed again very clearly at the end of the book of Revelation when it talks about um, the, the, the lake of fire um, and how it's going to be um, tormenting um, the, the souls of those thrown into it day and night forever and ever. Um, so we, we see very similar language followed by the new heavens and the new earth, which are established um, after that. Um, so going back to Matthew uh, 3, 
Um, yeah, going back to Matthew, where was I? 3.12. Yeah, Matthew uh, 3.12. So, yeah, th- this baptism of um, Holy Spirit and, and fire is not, you know, this is not, uh, we understand the Holy Spirit, that's not under debate. The fire is directed at unbelievers. So in other words, um, according to this statement, this is really all-encompassing for all mankind. You're either going to be baptized with Holy Spirit or you're going to be baptized by fire. You know, so it's, it's going to be one or the other, and it's going to be based upon um, whether um, one accepts Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, makes that confession, and repents of their sins um, or not. Um, so we, we see baptism um, being used both uh, literally and symbolically. This is the case of where it's being used symbolically. And let's see if we can take a look at uh, some of these um, other verses. Acts 8, um, verse 36, I think is a good one. Acts 8, uh, verse 36, uh, this is the, the eunuch and, uh, and Philip, um, and actually starts, um, uh, you know, starts much earlier than this, but they get to the baptism by the time you, you get to verse 36. But I, I think it's probably worth looking at um, the, the context, um, and we will start and uh, go, go up to verse 25. Uh, so when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritan. Uh, but an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, said, Get up, go south um, to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. So Philip was directed uh, to go southward, and that's where he runs into this um, Ethiopian eunuch. Um, verse 30, Philip ran up and heard him reading um, Isaiah the prophet and said, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How could I unless someone guides me? Um, and, and now the passage of Scripture which we was reading was this, and, and basically reading out of Isaiah 53. I mean, talk about the sovereignty of God. I mean, Isaiah 53 is um, that, that uh, chapter of Isaiah that speaks of Jesus as the suffering servant, right, giving his life as, as, um, as really the payment for the sins of all mankind. And, and, of course, by God's sovereign hand, that's exactly what he's reading. Um, verse 34, the eunuch answered Philip. After they read that passage, the eunuch answered Philip, Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or someone else? So we see in the eunuch, there, there's a desperation in his heart. He wants to know who this person is. He, he realizes that the, that the key to salvation is right here in this verse. Um, verse 35, then Philip opened his mouth. <laughs> you, you know what's funny? The book of Acts often, often portrays the apostles as opening their mouth, almost the same way that you would open up the word of God, open up a scroll. So it's like opening the mouth and the word of God comes out, right? I mean, so these, these are prophets and apostles. Then Philip opened his mouth and began from this scripture. He preached Jesus to him. And they went along the road. They came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart and say, um, with all your heart you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop. They both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. Um, and when they came up out of the water, so verse 39 shows that they were actually in the water. They had to, for them to come out of the water means they were in the water. They came up out of the water, and the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him. So we see very clearly there that baptism, baptism is uh, full immersion. Um, it, it is uh, full immersion. And, uh, and, and, there is, um, and let me ask you this. Why do you think um, water baptism is important? 
I mean, does water baptism itself give us the salvation? Because that's another big debate, right? No, no. And, and what are some examples? What's a very clear example we can come up with of someone who was saved that wasn't baptized? Yeah, the thief on the cross. All right, I mean, if, you're, if your theology requires that baptism is a mandatory step to salvation, then you can't possibly say the thief on the cross was saved. Um, because a thief on the cross, obviously he had no opportunity to be immersed, to be baptized. Now, when I talk to people that try to argue with me that baptism is absolutely necessary, and I bring up that example, and they say, well, God is a God of grace. He can overlook that. I'm like, no, no, no. This is, we're, we're talking about legal requirements to salvation. And, and the legal requirement to salvation is faith in Jesus Christ. But if you're saying it's also baptism, then there can't be an exception here. On what basis would he make an exception? You know, so it's either faith alone or it's faith plus baptism. Now, the counter argument to this, when you go through the book of Acts, and, uh, and for instance, take a look at Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, the very first uh, sermon um, on the day of Pentecost uh, from Peter, as he's addressing the Israelites. And Acts chapter 2, go down to verse 38. Um, this is where he makes the statement. Uh, after he preached the sermon, actually, he, he preached the, this sermon, and the conclusion in verse 36 was, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So we see these, these steps laid out by Peter, that, that, and, and you see this consistently through Acts, um, the, the call to, um, to, to, to believe, to repent, and, and be baptized. Um, so we see them together quite often. Um, and what we and the way we would explain that is that that's really a first step of obedience, right? What's that? It's a symbolic washing. It is a symbolic washing, and and uh, the Old Testament significance is not lost on this. Um, but in the Old Testament, where you would do a spiritual, you would repent and do a spiritual washing, you know, before you take on a task. This this is this is really the the, the new covenant rebirth. You know, that's you know when when you go down when you're baptized, it's it's a it's symbolic of the fact that you were buried with Christ and you are raised up with Christ. Um, in fact, go with me to Romans chapter six, verse three. So one book over to the right. Um, from uh, Acts, uh, we get to Romans, Romans chapter 6, um, verse 3. And Paul writes this, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of his Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. So there Paul makes a direct connection between the baptism and this image of Jesus being, being um, crucified, buried, and then resurrected. Um, so we, we die with Christ and we are raised anew with, uh, with Christ. Uh, that, that is the symbolism. Now what, um, what I like to do when we have baptisms here at the church is, is, is to also have a testimony. You know, usually I'll ask um, some questions about the person's faith or at least um, let them give a testimony. When Clark got baptized, he gave a testimony. Um, and uh, we had uh, little Clark up there, the little uh, little Clark before the big Clark. <laughs> we had uh, little Clark uh, Farrell, um, you know, and uh, for him, I asked him some questions that uh, that he answered. 
Um, now, some people argue, well, that's not biblical. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that you have to make this public profession. And um, the reason why I like to do that is, you know, we may have visitors at the church. We may have people who are non-believers, people who are attending that maybe don't truly believe. And, and when they see this baptism, I not only want them to see the baptism, but I, I think it's a wonderful opportunity for them to hear the testimony of that person of why they're getting baptized. Um, so while it's not, while we don't have clear biblical precedent of someone doing that, I also don't think it's a bad thing. I think it's a good thing um, for people who are here to actually hear that. Plus, for those who are uh, us who are believers, I think it's an encouragement also, um, just to be reminded of the wonderful work of God in, in the lives of, of other people. Um, and uh, for us, uh, for, for myself, as well as the deacons, um, we go through a process with anyone that uh, wants to be a member and wants to be baptized. We sit down with them. You know, we want to find out what, uh, you know, give us your, your salvation testimony, your understanding of the gospel. We want to know those things because we want to make sure that they have a clear understanding. Um, I've, I've recently been hearing of um, celebrities, uh, and I'm not talking, Kanye West recently, a big name celebrity, and, and he's being taught well. I mean, he has, um, the, the pastor, his pastor actually came from my seminary, great, great preacher. He's being taught extremely well. And uh, the album that he released has incredible theology um, in those rap tunes, which is, I can't even believe I'm saying that. Um, but but that's that's the case. I, the, the theology in his rap songs are, are, are better than a lot of theology of songs that a lot of churches are singing on Sunday morning. Um, but I, I've heard of other celebrities, you know, I, I hear of this celebrity, that celebrity has come to Christ, and then I read what they say, and I'm like, I don't know that they understand the gospel. You know, I, I, there was one big name celebrity where I, I read what he said and he started talking about how, um, you know, he knows that there's multiple ways to heaven and, and he chose Christianity because that suited him best. I'm looking at this going, whoever shared the gospel with him didn't share the gospel because that's not the gospel. You know, the gospel is that this is the only way, that there is no other way. Right. So we want to be sure that that gospel testimony is clear. That's why we sit down with them, but also to be an encouragement to you when that person goes up and uh, and gets baptized. Um, let me share one other verse, because for people that um, will really harp on baptism being uh, being needed for salvation, go to First Corinthians one. This is a passage that most people don't um, don't think about too often. But I think it's very interesting what Paul says here. First Corinthians one. 1 Corinthians um, 1, and Paul addresses this, uh, th this problem of division within the church. I mean, he, he, he spells it out uh, right after his opening greetings. Look at verse 11. 1 Corinthians 1, 11, Paul says this. He says, I've been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, I am of Christ. In verse 13, has Christ been divided? Um, Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And then look at what he says next, verse 14. I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say that you were baptized in my name. Now, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. I think it's very interesting that Paul says that, look, I, all, all you believers, there's only a few of you that I baptized, and I'm thankful there's only a few of you that I baptized. His primary mission was to bring the gospel message. Um, what he was mostly concerned about was their profession of faith. And what he's saying here is like, look, I'm glad I didn't baptize you guys so that this division wouldn't be taken further. So in other words, the, the real issue is faith. 
you know, faith and, and uh, faith in Christ specifically. Uh, baptism is a matter of obedience. It's not, uh, it's not the prerequisite um, for salvation. So I think you see here that Paul, there, there's a clear um, deprioritization in Paul's, in Paul's ministry of being the person that actually baptizes people. What he wants. Yeah. The next verse, I think, emphasizes that. Yeah, um, so, that, um, so that no one would say, you were baptized in my name, now I did baptize. Okay, verse 17, for Christ did not send me, yeah, right, did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Thank you, I've, I've forgotten that verse. It's right there. Um, yeah, so you, you see a clear priority on Paul's part to preach the gospel, because preaching the gospel is what brings um, salvation when people respond in faith. Baptism, baptism is just a first, uh, first act of obedience. Um, so when there are certain churches that would say that baptism is an absolute necessity um, for salvation, um, I, I would say that's, I'm sorry, but that's a false gospel. Yeah. Yes, and sometimes uh, we, we hear many stories of people on their deathbed yeah. who accept that's right. Christ. That's right. Do they take them out of the hospital room and dump them in the right. spot tank right. or something? <clears throat> yeah, yeah, no. No, that's right. You know, and, and we, live, we live in a different world than they did. I mean, they, the world they lived in, the moment they believed, there was always a body of water they can go to and get baptized. You know, if you're here in Brawley, what are you going to do? You're going to go to the, the storm canals or something? Uh, I'm, go to the new, the new river. That's <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, <laughs> you're gonna go out to the Sultan Sea. I, you know, there's, yeah, yeah, yeah. You wouldn't want to do that. Exactly. That's that's my point. You, you know, and, and so so today, I, I mean, <laughs> you, you know, churches, um, you know, when when we baptize, obviously, you know, we've got to sit down with them, and and it might not be, uh, you know, another week until we can set it up and make sure that they get baptized and all that. And so I'll ask people, okay, so from the time that they profess Christ to the time that they actually get baptized, what if what happens if they die in between? You know, and usually the answer is, well, God is gracious to overlook. No, 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 wait a second. <laughs> you, you, okay, so you're saying that, that the person's faith saved the person even before he was baptized. And God, but, but, but you're, then you're also saying that baptism is necessary for salvation. So, you know, you're, you, can't, you know, you can't have it both ways here. Um, so it's the faith. Um, a person would not get baptized without faith in Jesus Christ first. Um, that has to be first. Yes. No. So in, uh, in Hebrew, he wasn't saved. Right, right. Yeah, it's the same kind of thinking. It, it's the same kind of thinking. Well, he wasn't baptized, so he wasn't saved. Well, the important thing is that if he had true faith in Jesus Christ, um, then, yeah, that's what provides salvation. So, so if he, the person, The, 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 no, the question is, did he have true faith? If, if it was true faith, if he, has true, if he had true faith, he is saved. That, that's, that's the point here. True faith saves. Now, I would say to anyone that has true faith that has not been baptized, I would say get baptized. Um, because that, that's, that's a commandment of the Lord. And, and if you continue to refuse to get baptized, I have to question, why are you refusing to do this? I mean, that's, it's clearly in Scripture to, to get baptized. Even the Great Commission, right? Go and make disciples of all the nations, but it includes baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Mike? Yeah, historically, how, how did the, these churches come up with infant baptism? I don't Yeah. Yeah, so so the, um, the the connection they make uh, is um, they they go back to the 
Old Testament practice of circ- circumcision. So babies are circumcised, so they say, they'll say that um, the baptism of babies is, is kind of the symbolic equivalent us being children of Abraham rather than circumcision, now we, we just we baptize them. Um, and, and from what I understand, they wouldn't say that the baby is automatically saved. It's just a symbolic act. Um, the, the problem, yeah. Yeah, what about the girls? Right, right. Yeah, in the Old Testament, the girls, I mean, you didn't do anything to the girls, right? Yeah, yeah so. Um, I was raised in a Presbyterian church and uh, studied the Westminster Catechism. And we were taught um, now, baptism is used uh, uh, interchangeably uh, with, um, uh, I've just lost the, the word now. Uh, uh, it, uh, baptism, when you sprinkle a baby, yeah. uh, that's called christening. Yeah. And if you look at the word, it, uh, it's really christening. Oh. They are brought into the family of God yeah. and are covered by uh, by the blood of Christ, even though they're too young to accept Christ personally, mm. it is a dedication ceremony. Right. But um, I, I, usually that ceremony is called christening rather than baptism. Yeah. And, and it is regarded as a sacrament, as a, a, a ceremony that conveys grace. Right. 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 Before. Um, a person can join the uh, Presbyterian Church. Mm-hmm. It is required that they undergo this ceremony of christening yeah. or uh, sprinkling baptism. Yeah. Uh, there's a, a big division. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there is. The two. Now, I find it interesting that in the Russian Orthodox Church, they actually put the baby under the water. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, which the baby isn't too happy about, but uh, uh, but that's part of their their ceremony. There are a yeah. lot of different uh, angles of this uh, right. christening, uh, but christening is a completely um, it's completely antithetical to the to yeah. It's 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 um it's extra biblical. It's not it's not in the Bible. You can't point to any verse that that says this is what you need to do. What they will justify it as is going back to the Old Testament and pointing to how um, babies in Israel, the, the, the male child had to be circumcised on the, on the eighth day. And, and this is really kind of the carryover of that. Um, that. That's the only thing that they can point to, but you don't see anything in the New Testament that shows that. And not only that, um, when we think about the Old Testament practice of circumcision, Paul makes very clear that the connection spiritually is not infant baptism, but it's spiritual circumcision of the heart. Um, it's receiving a new heart from the Lord. So, so that was actually meant to be a picture of what we really needed was the spiritual circumcision, the circumcision um, of the heart. So it's, um, it is odd to me that they would um, make this connection when the Bible actually shows exactly to me what the spiritual connection is. And it's not infant baptism. You know, it's, um, it's the new birth. It's the new birth receiving the regenerated heart uh, from, from God. Um, yeah, it's, um, it's strange. Now, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't consider Presbyterians to be um, unsaved. I mean, they have the same gospel. You know, they preach the same gospel. They believe a lot of the same things that, that I believe. I've got uh, friends who are Presbyterians. Um, but, yeah, I, I, would, um, I, I would disagree on, on this issue. And um, R.C. Sproul, um, R.C. Sproul, well-known theologian, he passed away um, a year or two ago. Him and John MacArthur were very, very, were like the closest of friends. And John MacArthur was very much an immersion guy. And R.C. Sproul was, he was a Presbyterian, you know. So he, you know, he had these practices and yet those two were 
very close and, and dear friends. Um, but yeah, it's, um, it's, it's pretty clear to me. I mean, if you just follow the scriptural model, um, I think it's pretty clear um, why, we, why we do what we do. Um, let's, uh, let's move on to the Lord's Day. Any, any questions? Any other questions or comments as it relates to baptism? All right. Well, let's uh, look at this statement again, make sure I covered everything. We believe that Christian baptism is the immersion of a believer in water to show in a solemn and beautiful symbol our faith in the crucified, buried, and risen Savior. I think we talked about that. And pictures our death to sin and resurrection to a new life. We talked about that. That it is a prerequisite to the privileges of church membership. Now, we didn't talk about that yet. So why do we require baptism for church membership? Yeah, it's conformity, it's obedience. I mean, look, just show us that you're willing to take that first step of obedience already, right? And sometimes people ask, well, what if a person was baptized by, let's say, the Roman Catholic Church and they were saved out of it? Do they need to be baptized again? Yes. Yeah, I, I would say yes. There are some who would argue no. Um, I, yeah, I, I think baptism is supposed, to, is supposed to line up with your actual salvation. It's not, it doesn't line up with your former um, connection to, to a church that teaches a false gospel. Um, so I, I would say it, um, it, is, uh, it applies to um, your conversion, and, uh, and it's a prerequisite to church membership because we want to know that you've actually followed that first step of, of obedience. Um, so on to the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table. Um, this is a pretty basic statement. We believe that the Lord's Supper is the commemoration of his death until he comes, is open to all who have been saved, and should be preceded always by solemn self-examination. Um, so the Lord's Table, this one, um, we, just, uh, we just observed that this morning, didn't we? Um, this morning we observed the Lord's Table, and, and, and the verses I read this morning are, are the same verses that uh, would apply here. 1 Corinthians verse 11, 1 Corinthians verse 11 um, we'll go from verse 23 all the way to 28, and then I'll, I'll talk about uh, some of the some of the major disputes that happen around this. Uh, chapter 11, First uh, Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. First Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. And Paul wrote, uh, "For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed." took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So I, I want to stop there. When we take this, we take it in remembrance of Christ. We take it in remembrance of, of his, his sacrifice. And verse 25, in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of of me. So once again, we see that remembrance, but we also see the cup is the cup of the new covenant. Um, that Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross and, and he was resurrected, he officially ushered in a new covenant to replace the old covenant. The old covenant being the law of Moses. That was, that was officially satisfied with the, with the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And then with his resurrection, he ushered in the new covenant. Um, and then we, we saw the results of the new covenant with Peter on the day of Pentecost proclaiming the gospel. And, and now you've got a generation of believers, new believers, first generation believers that um, are being added to the church now under the new covenant. And, and so for those within the church, they were to observe this in remembrance of, of the death of Christ. Um, verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. So that's interesting. You, when you eat and drink, when you take part in communion, you proclaim his death. Now, why do we proclaim the Lord's death? 
Yeah, without death, there's no salvation. We, we proclaim what he accomplished on the cross. We proclaim his work on the cross um, that freed us from, from the requirements of the law and, and simply gave us salvation on the basis of faith. So when, when we take part of this, it's, it's a way for us as a church body to proclaim the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so it's not only the fact that we proclaim his death, but there's this idea that we're also looking forward to the time in which he's coming back. We're going to continue to do this until he comes back. So you're not just drinking, thinking of his death, but you're also thinking of his return. Um, his return when he will come back and, and establish his kingdom and, and usher in the, the, the final state. Uh, verse 27, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner um, shall be guilty of the body and of the blood of the Lord. Now, this is uh, interesting because verse 28 says, but a man must examine himself and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Um, this is where I have to give props to Terry Norris because it was um, not too long ago we were sitting in Terry Norris's class and he was going through the book of Jude and talking about some of the love feasts and he brought up the fact that, you know, when you, when you take communion, this is not about just examining your own heart for um, unconfessed sins. Uh, but when you look at the context of 1 Corinthians 11, and he's absolutely right, what was happening was that there was abuse going on within the body of Christ, that there were people within the body who were neglecting the needs of other people, uh, and they were doing it out of just kind of a, a callousness of heart. Um, so really what, uh, what Paul is pointing to is that that's, that's one of the ways that you, you, know, you, you drink this in an unworthy manner, that you're, you're being completely negligent of the needs of the body of Christ and even taking advantage and, and, and keeping people away from some of their needs uh, within the body of Christ. Um, so th this is very much a corporal act. It's not one that we do individually at home. I know some people that will, you know, will, will ask, hey, can you come by my house and let's, let's uh, take the Lord's table? Well, the Lord's table is meant to be taken with the church. It's not a personal thing. I've had people um, you know, at weddings, and I'm not saying that you know, it's necessarily, I mean, I'm not going to condemn it. Um, but when I, when I do weddings, I don't do communions at weddings either. Um, if you do a communion at a wedding, you've got a bunch of people in the audience who are non-believers. And are you going to have them drink of the, the, the cup and the bread when they don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? So, you know, for that reason, I don't, I don't do it at, um, at, at weddings either. Um, though I, I've seen some where the couples do it, um, just the couples and, and, and no one in the audience. But, you know, then it's not, okay, you do have believers in the group. And so now you're, you're taking communion, but you're not taking a communion with the believers who are in the group. So, you know, th those are things that, um, that, that we think about when, you know, kind of officiating weddings and whatnot. But th this is a church ordinance. It should be done together. Um, with the with the body of Christ. Now let me take you to um, a disputed passage. Okay, so I've I've had you know most Roman Catholics. If you talk to them about this, because Roman Catholicism, I don't know if you understand Roman Catholic theology, what it teaches about the Lord's table. Roman Catholic theology actually teaches that the bread is literally the flesh uh, of Jesus Christ, and that the that the juice that you drink is literally the blood of Jesus Christ. Well, I mean. First, you would say that, well, that's ridiculous because I, you know, we're, we're purchasing bread and we're purchasing the, the juice to, to bring. But they will say that part of the process is that it literally turns into, it becomes, it becomes the flesh of Christ. It becomes the blood of Christ. And, and um, the idea is that um, Jesus, uh, you know, has to pay that price all over again for whatever unconfessed sins that you haven't had. Um, so he, he's continually dying, basically, through, through this, uh, the, this ceremony. And where they would point to, is um is John chapter six, John six forty one. 
John 6, uh, verse 41, and this is uh, the Jews grumbling about, and, and really uh, the entire entirety of chapter 6 almost talks about this, but when we get to 641, uh, Jesus had already been talking about himself being the bread of life. Uh, verse 34, therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. Now when he says this, there, there is clear Old Testament imagery. Um, because the Israelites, when they were in the wilderness, what did they get? They got manna out of heaven. Uh, and that's, that's how they were sustained. And Jesus here is saying, I am that bread that came down out of heaven. Verse 42, they were saying, Is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, they shall all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes from me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. And then here he says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes out of heaven so they may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is my true food, and my blood is, my, is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him." As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which come down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. Um, he who eats this bread will live forever. So, I mean, it's, you know, as they're struggling, as the Pharisees, are, are they keep pressing him, Jesus is not backing down. I mean, he's doubling down on these statements. He's like, no, you, you really need to do this. Um, now, the question is, is he talking about the Lord's table? I mean, what, 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 is, what is he saying here? He, he's talking about receiving eternal life, right? He's saying if you eat the flesh and drink the blood, you will have eternal life. You know, that, and implied in that is once for all. You do that and you live forever, right? Um, the Lord's table, as we describe it, is for believers or unbelievers? Believers. believers. The context here is addressing believers or unbelievers? Unbelievers. unbelievers. So I would say you can't equate this with that. Um, and you can't equate this with the Lord's table because this is directed at unbelievers who need eternal life. The Lord's table is directed at believers who are doing it in remembrance of Christ. Um, so we're not talking about the same thing. Well, how do we reconcile this? Well, we know in Scripture that salvation comes by faith. And, and Jesus even says, said, to, said himself in verse 27, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. So believing is synonymous with, with eating his, his flesh and, and, and drinking his blood. This is, it's symbolic language. And when you go to, I'll take you to one more place. Go to Luke 22, verse 17. And by the way, I'm also reminded when, um, when Jesus went to go talk to the Samaritan woman at the well, right? What did he say to her? He said, it said um, you know, if you, drink the, if you drink the waters I give, you know, you will live forever, right? You know, I, I am the waters of life. And, and so it's a very similar idea there. 
Uh, but when we go to Luke chapter 22, Luke chapter 22, verses 17 through 20, um, this is um, the, the actual um, point in Jesus' ministry where he uh, makes this, uh, sets up this ordinance. Verse 17, And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it amongst yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now until the kingdom of God comes. And when he took, had taken some of the bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, what... <laughs> Look, Jesus Christ is physically in front of them, all right? He's giving them bread, saying, this is my body, while he's physically in front of them. Okay, so obviously when he's giving the bread, the bread is not his body. Physically, it's his, he's right in front of them, so they understand. I mean, it's very clear. If you're there, you understand that Jesus Christ is not saying, this bread has become my body, even though I'm here physically in front of you. All right, so th this is a commemoration ceremony. But what I love is um, what, what he said uh, in verse 18, for I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. You know, there's a great feast that we're looking forward to in the future, you know, where we get to be with the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're going to be able to take communion with him. Amen. And, and you, this was the last time he took it, and the next time he takes it, we are going to be with him in the eternal state. You know, so when, when 1 Corinthians 11 says, you know, we, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, it very much has this idea. It's not just that he's going to come back, but it's that we're going to be able to celebrate this with him. I mean, that's, that's marvelous. I mean, that's, uh, that, that's, that's, that's amazing stuff. Um, let me see what else. Any questions? Um, is, this, is this helpful? Is this clear? Yeah, and these are, these are the two ordinances of the church. When we say ordinances of the, uh, of the church, I mean, obviously, we as believers, we have many commandments that we follow, that we obey. Uh, but when we talk about ordinances of the church, these are things that are set up in the New Testament that the church body does together. You know, we, we observe these things um, together. Now, prior to the Lord's table, what the Jews did is that they would, they would take feast uh, in celebration of, of Passover, right? Um, they would have their Passover meal. Um, and the Passover meal, do you know what the Passover meal was supposed to represent? Do you know where the word Passover comes from? Exodus. Yeah, I, I, I'm hearing you, some of you say it. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's exactly. It's when the destroyer, when, when God promises that the destroyer will pass over your home when they see the blood of the lamb on the doorposts. I mean, and if you connect this, this is, this is amazing if you connect this. Because the Israelites in Egypt... They're, they're being delivered out of Egypt through, you know, the 10 plagues are going on. And plague after plague after plague, you know, Pharaoh's not giving in, right? Each time Pharaoh doubles down, he says, no, I'm not letting you go. No, I'm not let, letting you go. And then after the ninth plague, that's when the Lord says, okay, you know what? We're going to institute the Passover. And this is going to be something you're going to celebrate for the rest of your life. In commemoration of the fact that you have been released. Well, wait a second. They hadn't been released yet. They hadn't been released yet. But the Lord always had intended that it was going to be that 10th plague that would set them free. So, you know, God doesn't set up holidays the way we set up holidays. We set up holidays. It has to happen first. The 4th of July, the, the Day of Independence had to happen first. And then we look back and say, wow, that was an important day. Let's turn that into a holiday. No, God does it the other way around. Here, we're going to establish this is an important day. And then I'm going to show you why it's important. He goes on to bring the 10th plague and he sets the Israelites and, and what's interesting is that of all the plagues that came down, the Israelites were not in danger of any of the plagues. But the 10th plague, God said, OK, take that blemish free lamb, take the blood of that blemish free lamb, put the blood on the doorposts, and only then will you be spared of the destroyer. Very interesting. Why, why would God do that? 
Well, God always wants them to know that this Passover that they celebrate year after year after year after year was to remind them that they were set free by the blood of the Lamb as the destroyer passed over them. And now that has been replaced in the New Testament times really by the Lord's table in which we remember the death of Jesus Christ until the Lord comes back again. So there, there is actually this beautiful continuity when you think about you know, what the, the symbolism of the Passover and the symbolism of the Lord's table. Mike Shelton, did you have something you want to say? Well, I was just going to say, uh, <clears throat> the, the Passover is the, the piece that Jesus says that he desired to eat it with them. Yeah. Because he was the perfect Passover lamb. That's right. And in Psalm 22, it talked about, he said, mm. my bones are out of joint. Yeah, yeah. But the command to kill the, the lamb for the Passover said, do not break a bone in its body. Yeah. And yeah, that's right. Not a bone in the body of Jesus was broken. Yeah, Psalm 22 is an amazing, amazing Amazing psalm. Yeah, yeah. One of these days, I'm going to have to have to preach that. But yeah, it's it's phenomenal imagery, and and this is why Jesus is often referred to as both the lion and the lamb, right? Um, Both of them have Old Testament significance. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah, as had been prophesied, going all the way back to Genesis, um, that the Messiah, the the eternal King, would come out of the line the, the line of Judah. Um, but he is also the, the perfect lamb that we saw that imagery um, right there on, on the Passover. And John the Baptist, I think it's John 1, 21 or 29, when he looks at Jesus Christ and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take these sins of the world away. I mean, right there, I mean, John the Baptist knew what Jesus Christ uh, represented, um, that, that he would be that, that perfect sacrifice. Um, well, I was hoping I can get to the security of the saints uh, tonight, but it's already like 6.56, and if I start it now, we're going to stay here another hour probably. Um, so we'll have to cover that um, next week. But any, um, any comments or, or questions, um, additional thoughts here? Yes, Rick. Yeah, I was just thinking, you know, it's uh, the common denominator. The blood is what does Yeah. Here today, we believe in the death, burial, and resurrection. Yep. And it's only through the blood of Jesus Christ that we are saved. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. And, um, and, and there's, there's imagery actually going all the way back to Jan. If you want to look at one more passage, um, one more passage. Because you brought, it's because you brought this up. It's not because of me. It's because Rick brought this up. <laughs> uh, Genesis 9, go to Genesis 9. Um, Genesis 9, this is following the great flood. Right. And uh, God is going to establish the Noahic covenant, the covenant with Noah that he will not uh, flood the earth again. Uh, But what's very interesting is the emphasis that he puts upon blood here. Uh, Genesis chapter nine, starting in verse one, Genesis chapter nine, starting in verse one. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast, on every bird, on the sky, everything that creeps on the ground, the fish of the sea, into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I will give all to you as I give the green plant. Only you shall not eat the flesh of its life, that is, its blood. Surely I will require your lifeblood from every beast, I will require it, and from every man, from every brother, I will require the life of man." Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. Um, So here he's got this this now new commandment about blood. And blood, really from early on in Genesis, represented life. It represented life. 
So that symbolism that you point to, um, and ultimately when Jesus Christ went on the cross, now it wasn't that there was something mystical about the blood of Jesus Christ itself, but it was represented the fact that Jesus gave his life. He, he gave his life um, on the cross, and, and that's what, when, when Paul and, and the other writers talk about the blood of Christ, he's, it's really talking about the life of Christ that he sacrificed on the cross on our behalf. Um, but yeah, that, that symbolism of blood goes all the way back um, to, to Genesis. Um, any other comments or questions? All right, let me, uh, let me go ahead and close in prayer, and uh, we'll, we'll get uh, going with the food as well.